If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. Hey, folks. uh, My name is Rob Gorski, and you're listening to the Autism Dead podcast. Uh, My guest today is Allison Singer. Uh, She's co-founder and president of the Autism Science Foundation, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to funding innovative autism research and supporting the needs of people with autism. Uh, She is a mother of a 22-year-old daughter with autism and legal guardian of her older brother uh, who has autism. Uh, So she's she's a natural advocate. She's been doing it in uh, all of her life. She's been around autism uh, for most of her life. And she has a list of credentials that is literally a page long. Uh, I've tried to read it off about a dozen times. And so I'm just going to copy and paste it because I think it's really important that you guys uh, know who she is uh, and, and, and see the, the impact that she has had over the years. And uh, she's somebody that I greatly respect. And I'm very grateful uh, to have come on the show. Uh, before we get into the interview, I just want to touch base and sort of remind everybody uh, what autism is. And, and autism is basically... Uh, It basically refers to a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, speech, uh, communication problems, um, and uh, a lot of times there's there's sensory issues, a lot of comorbid things um, that go along with autism. The CDC estimates that about 1 in 59 children are impacted by autism uh, in the United States today. There is not just one uh, type of autism. It's very misleading because, you know, the word autism makes you think like everybody's the same, but they're not. They are unique, beautiful individual people who have different strengths, weaknesses, um, thoughts, desires, you know, uh, hopes and dreams. They're all unique individuals, brilliant in their own way. And and what we wanted to do today was just sort of talk about where we stand in the autism community as we go into 2020. Uh, we'll talk about some of the things that the Autism Science Foundation is doing and uh, some of the things that Allison is sort of looking forward to as uh 
we, we kind of get deeper into 2020. So I really appreciate you guys tuning in. Please stay tuned. I will play the interview for you in its entirety following this commercial break. We'll be right back. The Autism Dead is brought to you by Mightier. Mightier is an amazing program out of Harvard Medical and Boston Children's that utilizes video games in a wrist strap heart rate monitor to teach your kids to emotionally self-regulate. So if you are an autism parent like I am, that means fewer meltdowns. Fewer meltdowns means reduced parental stress and improved quality of life for your entire family. Uh, I've been using it with my son for over a year. It's absolutely fantastic. The games are fun. They're engaging. He loves it. Uh, doesn't even realize that he's learning while he's doing it. And then he naturally applies it to the rest of his life. It's basically biofeedback for kids. So it does work for any child. Uh, but due to the nature of, of autism, kids on the spectrum tend to have a more difficult time with emotional self-regulation. And so Mightier has a, has a very profound impact on that. So if you want more information, including how to get a free 30-day trial, visit theautismdad.com forward slash Mightier. That's theautismdad.com forward slash Mightier. Okay, and and we're back. And uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, we have Allison Singer here today. She is the founder of the um, Autism Science Foundation. And uh, thank you very much for taking the time to to come on a show and and have a conversation about autism. Um, could you just take a minute and, and sort of give us some background on on your experience um, with autism? Happy to be here. Autism has been part of my life for all of my life. My older brother was diagnosed with autism back in the 1960s. And then uh, in the late 90s, my oldest daughter was diagnosed with autism. So um, when people say nothing has changed, I can promise you things have changed radically. When my brother was diagnosed in the 1960s, um, doctors blamed my mother they told her that the reason my brother retreated into autism was because her first thought upon waking up from anesthesia after giving birth was that my brother looked like a scrawny yellow chicken. And apparently that thought, that single moment, was enough to send my brother retreating into autism. And my mother was told she was a refrigerator mother, too cold to take care of a baby properly and that the best thing she could do would be to send him away to some school in Chicago where he could be reborn um, and re-emerge into the world without autism. Um, fortunately, we now know that autism is absolutely not the result of bad parenting or a single thought at a moment in time. Uh, we know that autism is primarily genetic in, disor genetic in origin. Um, and that parents of children with autism are among the most loving and caring people you will ever meet. Uh, so we have made a good amount of progress uh, from the 1960s to current day. I guess my experience goes goes back to 2005. And so when I, when I look back from 2005 on, there's a lot of things that I've found very frustrating and, and overwhelming and, and things like that. But I guess I never... I have no experience before that. And, and I'm, I'm aware that a lot of that stuff happened, but I guess it's never, it's never really in the forefront of my mind when I think about that. And so I, I now, I guess, have a, have a different perspective and I, I can't imagine as hard as, as being an autism parent is today. I cannot imagine what it was like, uh, back then with your mom and, and the way that the world viewed it and the things that the doctors said, 
I mean, that, that is awful. The experience of the experience that families have is very different now. Sometimes people ask me, um, they assume that I understand what it's like to be a sibling of someone with autism today, you know, that I would understand what siblings go through. And really I don't because back in the 1960s, children with autism were sent away. They were institutionalized and the stigma of having a child with autism was so great that at the time my mother said when my brother um, was sent to live away from us, he didn't grow up in our home. And my parents told us to, you know, she, my mother would tell me, just say you have the one brother. I had two brothers, but she said, just, it's our family's private business. I remember her saying over and over because the stigma associated with having a child with autism was so tremendous. And again, the blame was placed on the parents. My mother was told to try harder with her other children. Um, and fortunately today, we're able to keep our children with autism home. That presents its own set of challenges for families. Um, but it's, I think it's still far better than when we sent our, our children away. Oh yeah. No, no I, I would agree with you hundred percent. I, one of the reasons I like talking to people like this is because sometimes I get so locked in my own experience, in my own views that, that I sort of lose perspective. And, and that is something I think everybody needs to be aware of. It's frustrating as things are now or can be now, um, we, we have come a long way. You know, we don't view people with autism as um, broken or, or needing to be institutionalized. You know, now we embrace them more, you know, and, and that's, that is, that is major progress. You're absolutely right. And I think beyond that, the awareness of autism among the general population mm -hmm. is far greater. And so there's a, a much more compassionate community towards our family members with autism than there was in the 60s. I think now with one in 59 children being diagnosed with autism, everyone knows someone who has a child with autism if they don't have a child themselves, either a, a niece, a nephew, a co-worker's child, uh, every, a neighbor's child. Mm -hmm. it, it's a much different world that we live in now with the, with the greater awareness of autism. How, how was it as a sibling back then? Like, like what was that like for you um, to, to sort of be told to deal with it in that, that kind of way? It was a very different time than it is now. When, when my brother was four years old, he was enrolled in a scientific study. My mother looked all over for a scientific study that he could participate in. And she found one that was studying children with autism. Um, it required him to actually live as an inpatient in Bellevue Hospital in New York City. So he did that for two years. He lived as an inpatient. And an interesting point is during that time, during this study to try to understand what causes autism, my mother had to undergo psychotherapy because think about it. They thought autism was caused by bad parenting. So if you wanted to get at what were the underlying causes of autism, you had to study the moms, right? So you know, she suffered that humiliation in order to get him enrolled in this study. He lived at, at um, Bellevue Hospital for two years. Then when the study ended, the doctors at Bellevue um, pulled strings to get him into the residential center that was closest to our home. And unfortunately, that was Willowbrook. So he spent several years in Willowbrook. 
Um, and we would go and we would visit him on Saturdays. And honestly, I, I hated it. I mean, visiting him for me meant basically sitting in the sibling waiting room with the other brothers and sisters. And um, I just remember it smelled like ammonia all the time. And you would hear moaning and screaming. And there was a black and white television mounted in the corner of the, the visitor's waiting room. And um was always tuned to Channel 11 in New York City. So that meant it always had either Abbott and Costello reruns or New York <laughs> Mets games. And I just begged my mom to not make me go there anymore. And, you know, at the time I had no idea that she was already hard at work trying to get my brother out of there. And eventually she did. We actually had to move out of our home in Queens um, to, into Rockland County so that he could be placed in a much better residential center. But that, that was really my experience. It was sitting in a waiting room with other siblings watching Abbott and Costello. That, that is, I guess I don't really even know what I to say. I think now, <laughs> the, the experience, I have two daughters, one with autism and one without autism. Sometimes mm -hmm. I say I have one diagnosed with autism and one diagnosed with empathy. And the reason I say that is because the experience of siblings now is that they see their siblings struggling. They become incredibly compassionate members of society. Mm -hmm. So many of them grow up wanting to go into helping professions. You know, when my, my younger daughter, Lauren, who doesn't have autism, when she was in kindergarten and the teacher would go around and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, you have the typical, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a fireman. She said, I want to be an ABA therapist. And her wow. teacher called me and said, what is an ABA therapist? Um, the siblings now grow up and they want to be special ed teachers and they want to be speech pathologists and they want to become child psychiatrists and they want to be helpers in this, in this community. And that's an extremely positive thing. Now I know um, a lot of times the siblings often struggle. Many of them um, are at higher risk for psychiatric disorders because of the genetics in their family. Mm -hmm. Many of them struggle because, the family is so focused on meeting the needs of the child with autism that sometimes the non-disabled siblings are left behind. But more and more, we are seeing not just negative uh, influences on the unaffected siblings, but very positive influences. And I actually I hate that term, unaffected siblings, because the siblings are very, very much affected. You know, it's 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 really interesting because what you said about the well i guess non-affected sibling um is is very true because they're like i have three kids with autism they all fall in sort of different places my two youngest are um very very high functioning my oldest is he's gonna be 20 on saturday which makes me feel or sunday which makes me feel <laughs> really old <laughs> um but you know he's 20 years old but he functions at a level of about five give or take and even even with three kids that have autism in different places you know you know there are times where one of my kids needs more of my attention than than the other two or two of them need more attention than one and and somebody always feels left out or or forgotten or 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 um kind of lost in the cracks and for me uh, especially as a single parent, it's, it's this constant 
juggling act and balancing and trying to do right by everybody. And it, it is, it's very challenging, but you know, listening to, to what your experience was as a sibling, you know, we, we are light years ahead of that at this point. And, and I guess rather than being focused on the struggle, I need to be more focused on being grateful that we are where we are and then build from there because not everybody had that. And, and so I really appreciate that perspective. And, and I hope that everybody else listening can, can sort of take that to heart because a lot of times we sort of get lost in what our own experience is and, and we, we sort of assume that that's what everybody else is going through. And, and that's just not the case. Um, and I was going to ask you uh, uh, about the Autism Science Foundation and, and what led you to uh, create that, but I guess I have the answer now. <laughs> Well, one of, one of the things that really led me to create the Autism Science Foundation was that I realized there was such a lack of research. Um, we didn't understand the causes of autism, and the treatments that were being suggested for autism were, were not based on really any sort of understanding of the underlying biological mechanisms that cause autism. Mm-hmm. I remember once I took my daughter to a neurologist, and um, he said, well, you know, you could give her a little Prozac. And I was so excited. I said, oh, what's the underlying mechanism by which the Prozac is going to help her? And I thought he was going to explain to me, you know, some sort of re-regulations of protein or some re-regulations of neurotransmitters. And he just sort of looked at me and he said, um, no, it just might make her feel better. And, and maybe you should take some too. <laughs> and I was like, we have to do better than that. I can't just throw drugs at her without any sort of understanding of how and why it would work. And so that's really what led me to focus so intensively on autism research. Our children deserve that. They are not guinea pigs. We shouldn't be throwing treatments at them that don't have, that haven't withstood the rigors of clinical trials and don't have evidence of efficacy. They deserve better. The Autism Den is brought to you by AngelSense. Did you know that roughly 51% of kids with autism will wander from a place of safety uh, to a body of water, train tracks, uh, busy intersections, and other places of danger? Uh, This is not a sign of bad parenting or a bad child. It's a phenomenon that occurs within the autism community at epidemic levels. And unfortunately, a lot of times it ends in tragedy. The only way that you can truly Uh, help increase the odds of a safe recovery is immediate intervention. And AngelSense gives you the tools to do that. Um, We've been using it in my house since early 2019. And I really, really like it. Uh, You have so many options uh, with with AngelSense. You can track your child back and forth to school. You can set up perimeters uh, and barriers so that you notify the moment your child enters or leaves a designated area. There's real uh, time tracking. There is two-way voice. There's SOS features. And what's really cool is when you talk to somebody at AngelSense, you're talking to a parent of a child who wanders so they get it. Uh, So if you want more information about AngelSense, visit theautismdad.com forward slash AngelSense. That's theautismdad.com forward slash AngelSense, and you'll be directed for more information. What is your focus at uh, the Autism Science Foundation? Our focus is on funding research that will help us understand the causes of autism and developing treatments that are targeted at remediating those causes. So um, 
we know that in in about 30 to 40 percent of children with autism now, we can identify the genes that are causing their autism. Um, we've now moved to a situation where we're trying to focus on a, a gene-first type of treatment intervention, where previously we would just throw lots of different kids who were diagnosed with autism into a clinical trial for a specific intervention, and we didn't really see any efficacy. Now we are sorting those kids based on uh, the gene that is causing their autism, and we're seeing uh, much better progress there. We also focus on trying to study interventions that parents are using. Um, you know, I think this year in particular, we sort of saw, saw a resurgence of some of these non-traditional types of interventions, like um, stem cell transplants, uh, fecal transplants, mm -hmm. and um, and cannabidiol, medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. We don't have data behind any of those yet. Um, and it's important for us to collect that data. So one thing that we focus on at the Autism Science Foundation is we try to study the interventions that parents are using so that parents will be in a, a better situation to make good decisions. And we do that because the value of those types of studies are, the value is there, whether the study is positive or negative. So if we do a study of CBD and it's positive, that's useful data for parents. And if it's negative, that's also useful data mm -hmm. for parents. Right now, um, CBD is being, I'd say, pretty widely used by parents of children with autism. Mm -hmm. um, and there have been, we haven't completed any trials. Some trials are underway. Um, we've done trials. Uh, we've, there are trials that have shown efficacy in children with epilepsy. We're currently conducting studies of children who have epilepsy and autism and studies of children with autism. But that data is not, it's not here yet. We don't, we don't have that information. So at this point, um, we don't recommend use of CBD. We don't recommend use of any intervention until there's good data supporting efficacy, and, and we want that data then to be replicated. So what do you see right now as being some of the most promising um, interventions? Um, well, we know that applied behavior analysis therapy, of which there are now many different types. You know, 10 years ago, we had one type of applied behavior analysis intervention. It was just direct trial training or low VOS training. It was very rigid and very restrictive and really not appropriate for people, for a lot of people with autism. Now we have different types of ABA therapy that are really focused on utilizing an individual's unique strengths to try to build up their areas of weakness. And that's the model we really focus on. All of our kids have strengths and weaknesses, and we need to be able to utilize their areas of strength um, to build up on their the areas where they, they may need more support. Um, other areas of research that have been super promising this year are, you know, we've learned that we can't just kind of come in and do these quick studies, one and done. We have to really do longitudinal studies where we're tracking the children over time if we want to actually see what works for them. So we've been investing in studies that track children from infancy uh, to try to understand what behaviors and features that they show as infants are predictive of autism and are predictive of autism severity later on when they become teenagers and adults. Mm -hmm. Um, and that really 
will speak to the type of intervention that's appropriate because we can't we can continue to have a one-size-fits-all approach to autism. Autism is so heterogeneous. You know, you know, people with autism are so different. Some of them uh, have no language, and some never stop talking. Some people with autism have um, IQ below 50, and or IQ that can't even be measured because they can't respond to the standardized tests. And then we have people with autism who have above average or genius level IQ. Mm-hmm. We have people whose, um, whose behaviors are difficulty navigating the, the social situation in the middle school cafeteria. And then we have people with autism who have self-injurious behaviors, aggressive behaviors that make it impossible for them even to be in the middle school cafeteria. So the idea that we should have one type of intervention for such different clusters of symptoms is, is really we is really passe. Um, we need to be looking specifically at each child, each teenager, each adult, and figuring out what it is that that person needs. And we need to make sure that those interventions have withstood the rigor of clinical trials. One of the things that, that I have found really frustrating and I think is is causing a lot of the confusion in society when it comes to autism is that we have one name for something that is different for almost every person who is diagnosed. And, and that, I guess I was wondering what your views are in that. Like um, when they got rid of Asperger's, I mean, I still, my two oldest will always be considered Aspies, I guess, um, whether it's removed from the DSM or not. Um, do you find that having one label for for all of these different people leads to more confusion or misunderstanding? Absolutely. I think the move from DSM-4, where we had five different types of autism, to DSM-5, where now everyone is lumped into autism spectrum disorder, has done a, it's been a terrible disservice to every person on the autism spectrum. I think particularly for those with severe autism who have intellectual disability and restrictive and repetitive behaviors uh, and aggression and self-injurious behaviors, they have been left behind. I think what has happened is in society's goal of including people with autism at the policy-making table or portraying them in the media, people who are more skilled who have more language are the ones who are able to be at the policy making table in Washington. They are the ones who are interviewed on the news to give their opinions. They are the ones who are seen in popular programs on television, like the good doctor mm-hmm. or the big bang theory. And what, what has happened is the general public now thinks that that high functioning autism is autism. Mm-hmm. And when we are out trying to raise money for autism research, people say, oh, well, Sheldon Cooper has autism. That doesn't seem so bad. Or, um, you know, oh, you have autism. That means you can be a surgeon. You know, people with autism are much more likely to consume medical services than deliver medical services. So what has happened is that people with very severe autism, which is 50% of people diagnosed with autism, 50% are left behind. And policies have been put in place in Washington at the state level that are actually hurting 
uh, people with severe autism. Policy, Medicaid policies regarding housing and regarding job types of job placements have been put in place that are actually extremely harmful to people with severe autism. I mean, that's why a new organization called the National Council for Severe Autism was formed because there's a, a great need for an organization to specifically represent the needs of people with severe autism because their voices have been drowned out um, by higher functioning self-advocates whose needs are extremely different. So this one term autism spectrum disorder, I think has been a terrible disservice uh, to people with severe autism. And at the same time, uh, several self-advocates I've spoken with say that it's a problem for higher functioning people as well, because when they go to try to get services, they're told they don't look autistic. They don't seem autistic enough. And so they have difficulty accessing the services and supports that they need and to which they are entitled. So I think it's been a disservice to everyone um, on the autism spectrum. And um, I think where we need to move is towards bringing back um, a term that actually describes a cluster of symptoms. When you say the word autism now, people don't know whether you're talking about someone who's very high functioning or has very severe needs who requires 24-7 supervision mm -hmm. or who is at risk of um, their retina detaching because their self-injurious behaviors include banging their head against the wall. So we need to have more than one term to define autism. We need either severe, the term severe autism or profound autism. I would argue we should bring back the term Asperger's. I think people liked that term. Mm -hmm. When you say someone has Asperger's, everyone knows what you mean. And that's what we need. Right now, when you say autism, no one knows what you mean. So, okay, so we, there's, in my family, uh, when, my, when my youngest was born, he was, he was nonverbal. And we were told that he was never going to speak, that we would um, probably have to care for him for his entire life. And it, it took four or five years, but he eventually is, is talking and he is really advanced in everything that he does. He has language that is, you wouldn't think you're talking to an 11 year old. Um, my, my middle child would have been sort of the classic Aspie, right? Like very high functioning, a little quirky, uh, socially awkward, stuff like that. And my oldest, uh, was diagnosed. It took a long time to get the diagnosis, but he was diagnosed with childhood disintegrative disorder, which is the most uncommon form of autism that I don't even know if it's listed anymore as a thing because it's so uncommon. Um, and, and now all three of them are, are thrown into the same mix. And so when you say, uh, you know, Gavin, my oldest is, is autistic and you talk to him, people understand that because he presents in a way that they would stereotypically think an autistic person would. When they meet my youngest two, they question everything about it because they don't look like they're autistic. And, and that is so frustrating because it does, it, it impacts services. It impacts um, uh, issues with, with schooling and education and, uh, later on, maybe job placement or, uh, you know, higher education. It, it is a challenge. And do you, I guess my question is, do you think that there are, well, I, I have heard people refer to, they'll say like autism level one or autism level three or autism level, whatever. And I don't know that that's something that happens in the States. Uh, is that something that you're, that you've heard of? where they talk about different levels? I have 
heard that, but it's not a meaningful term. I think what we what we need in order to communicate appropriately are meaningful terms like profound autism, severe autism, Asperger's disorder. When when you say those terms, people understand what you mean. And when you're talking about your three sons, I'm sure they have dramatically different needs and will mm-hmm. continue to have dramatically different needs, even though they're all diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So how can we as a society plan for their future needs, their housing needs, their employment levels of support, if we don't have information about their level of functioning. So I think this is something that the autism community really needs to come together, um, work together to add these new definitions. I think everyone will be made better off if we have greater clarity around the types of services, supports, and interventions that all people with autism will need going forward. For the last 15 years, I've been searching for answers as to what was stealing my son's health. Every conceivable test that could be done has been done, and nothing has ever been found to explain what was happening to him. Along the way, he was diagnosed with epilepsy, common variable immunodeficiency, Ehlers-Danlos, and an extremely rare autonomic disorder that's almost killed him on more than one occasion. The only test that hadn't been done yet was a test that sequences all of my son's genes. Unfortunately, in our current healthcare system, the wait for genetic testing is over a year and the cost, often not covered by insurance, simply makes this desperately needed test inaccessible to those who need it. Thankfully, there's hope. Probably Genetic is helping me to find the answers to questions that have long gone unanswered. Probably Genetic specializes in identifying rare genetic diseases that often go undiagnosed, especially in children already diagnosed with autism. They're on a mission to make full genetic sequencing accessible to those who need it the most. They significantly reduce the cost and drastically reduce the wait time as well. If you've already had whole exome or whole genome sequencing done but didn't get an answer, they can reanalyze your existing data. If you don't have the data available, they'll help you get it from your lab free of charge. So visit probablygenetic.com, use the discount code theautismdad100 to get $100 off, and you can join their reanalysis waitlist at probablygenetic.com forward slash waitlist.html. That's probablygenetic.com. Use the discount code theautismdad100 to save $100 off. And to join their reanalysis waitlist, you can visit probablygenetic.com forward slash waitlist.html. What are, what are some of the comorbid diagnoses that you, that you tend to see um, with kids who are diagnosed with autism? Well, we tend to see kids, adults, teenagers with autism who also have other types of mental health challenges. Um, you know, we know there's a good amount of overlap in the genes that cause autism, the genes that cause anxiety, schizophrenia. Um, it, it's, these are not single gene disorders. These are different genes working together in many cases in different ways, um, but, but they're the same genes that are involved in different types of um, mental health challenges. And so I think it's it's become almost a bigger burden for many families dealing with the comorbid psychiatric disorders than the autism itself. Many of the families I talk to say the anxiety that my child experiences is what keeps him from 
participating more fully mm-hmm. in community activities. You know, we can deal with the autism, but it's the anxiety. So we have to really invest in research to help us understand how anxiety manifests differently in people with autism. How do symptoms of depression manifest differently in people with autism? How do symptoms of ADHD manifest differently? And how do the medications that are traditionally prescribed for those types of psychiatric disorders affect someone with autism? You know, now that we've made we've made these inroads in understanding how the genes are interacting, we have to take the next step in research and understand how the interventions may work differently. I'm working with um, uh, a company called Probably Genetic, and they um, their focus is on identifying uh, rare disease in kids who are diagnosed with autism because a lot of times symptoms overlap and things go undiagnosed because we assume that it's one thing or the other. And I guess I was wondering, when, when you talk about you know, trying to put people in studies sort of based on genetics, do you guys have a stance on whether or not kids should be uh, undergo genetic testing when they're first diagnosed? Yes. We feel strongly that all children who are diagnosed with autism should undergo genetic testing. We know that there are some specific signal genes that cause autism. And if your child is diagnosed uh, with one of those gene disorders, then that would lead them towards really a different basket of interventions. So, for example, a Shank 3 mutation, um, also known as Phelan McDermott syndrome, um, would, on one hand, drive you towards a specific set of interventions, but also um, we, like, we encourage those families to enroll in clinical trials for new interventions that are specifically focused on the underlying biological mechanism that's affected by a Shank 3 mutation. So, and there are several um, of those single gene disorders. So yes, we encourage all families uh, to have that genetic testing. In in most cases, it's not going to turn up anything. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in my daughter's case, I take her every couple of years for genetic testing. Um, because every, you know, we're always finding new genes and understanding the interactions between genes. She does not have one of the single gene disorders. She doesn't really have any um, gene mutations that are associated with autism, but but we keep looking. Uh, but for those families whose children do have them, um, it does drive them towards specific types of interventions. It helps them understand what's coming. They can interact with other families whose children have that specific type of genetically derived autism. They can understand that uh, what may happen when those children go through puberty, what may happen uh, as they get older, the specific types of uh, deficits they may experience. So I think it's it's very useful from a family perspective to have access to other families who are in, in a similar situation. So absolutely, we encourage all families to go for genetic testing. Okay. Um, do you guys, when you mentioned... Um like when your daughter is genetically tested and nothing ever comes back, right? Nothing's flagged. Do you, do you think that we just haven't identified the cause yet? And eventually that something will be flagged or is there, is there another? Yeah. Okay. Every year we're finding more and more genes that are associated with autism. You know, I think last year we were at a hundred, this year we're at around 160. We know it's, it's multiple genes interacting at different points in time. It's very, very complicated. But at the same time, there are genes that come up over and over and over um, where 
they're really now the, the key autism genes. Um, and so if your child has a genetic test and, and you find a deletion or a duplication of that particular gene of any one of those genes, I mean, it, it can drive you towards a specific set of interventions. Do you feel like, and I know we sort of already touched on this, but, you know, looking back on 2019, do you feel like there have been maybe major advances in, in the field of autism? Like we've gained uh, valuable knowledge that, that helps us to better understand? I think the, the world of autism research is really two steps forward, one step back. We, we do make progress. Um, but for everything that we learn, we see other things that we, we need to study. So, you know, some of the things that we, we've learned this year are, as I mentioned, we're learning more and more of the very, very early signs of autism. Um, we're utilizing new technologies that enable us to diagnose children as early as six weeks of age. Um, and the value there is we can get them into a good early intervention program and, and hopefully prevent the most deleterious aspects of autism from even emerging. So, you know, that's a, a big benefit. We, for all the research we've done, we still know that early intervention is really the best weapon we have against autism and that children who are in a good evidence-based early intervention program have the, have the best prognosis. But we, we definitely made progress this year through the longitudinal studies where we're tracking children from birth uh, through the time that they are uh, young children to teenagers through the Baby Siblings Research Consortium. Um, we're learning more about how early features of infancy predict um, different types of symptoms as those children grow up, um, what types of motor deficits lead to different types of behaviors as the, as the kids get older. So that's, you know, that will definitely lead us towards different types of interventions based on those early signs. Um, other things we've learned this year are that we are able to, as I said, diagnose as early as six weeks utilizing new technology. Uh, we are finding more and more of the genes that cause autism, and we're learning that the genes that cause autism are also genes that cause other psychiatric conditions. So the anxiety that a children is experiencing is not just a function of their autism. It's, it's really anxiety. And so we have to work more closely with clinicians to make sure that they are trained to recognize uh, children with autism who have these comorbid psychiatric disorders and that the children get treated uh, for those, those disorders as well as treated for their autism. And we're learning more and more about how boys with autism are different from girls with autism. You know, we've known for many years that four times as many boys are diagnosed as girls. And for years, we thought that there was something about being male that conferred risk for autism. Uh, but through the genetics work we've done, we've learned that the genes that cause autism are equally distributed in boys and girls. And that was really a shock. You know, we didn't expect to see that. And so that really turned our thinking upside down. Instead of, instead of the theory that being male confers risk, now we're thinking maybe there's something about being female that confers resilience. Maybe there's something else that girls have that protects them from autism. Because in, in many cases, we see girls who have an autism gene, uh, for example, a, a large Shang3 mutation that if they were a boy would result in 
full-on autism, clinical features of Felix-McDermott syndrome. But in these girls who have these big mutations, they don't show any symptoms of autism. So we need to study those girls and understand what is it, what else do they have in common? What is it that's protecting these girls who have the, genetic, the genes that cause autism from having autism? And if we can find out that what that female protective effect is, if we can harness it, we can use it to protect both boys and girls uh, from autism. So one of the projects that we fund at the Autism Science Foundation is the Autism Sisters Project, where we are collecting DNA from unaffected sisters of people with autism to try to build a cohort of these girls who have genes that should cause autism but who do not have autism. And we want to understand what else do they have in common? Is there something estrogen-related, something that co-migrates with estrogen, something else about being female? Is there another gene deletion or duplication that they have that remedies uh, the other the deleterious deletions? So we're now, we've built a database. We have over 6,000 samples, and scientists are now studying that database to un try to understand what this female protective effect is. But I think that's a very promising avenue of research, and we're very hopeful that we'll have results from that project soon. Do you find that the adult autistic community is receptive to what you guys are doing, or do you find them that they view it as though you're trying to cure them or change who they are? Because like I get what you're doing, um, but there, there's sort of this split in the community, and there's all these little different factions. And I guess I wonder how how you guys have been received. Have you gotten pushback or, or anything like that? Well, just as adults with autism have many different types of symptoms, they have many different types of opinions. Mm -hmm. There are adults with autism who are uh, not in favor of research. They think all funds should be used to support services and we don't need research. And then there are other adults with autism who are, are very eager for there to be research. They want to understand why they have autism. They want there to be medications and interventions to alleviate the symptoms of their autism that prevent them from feeling like they can be fully engaged in community activities and, and hold down a job. So um, I think there will be as many opinions on that as there are people with autism. The, the studies that we fund, um, if we, when we find interventions, we certainly don't force them on anyone. Um, when you are an adult, if your IQ is high enough and you're able to make decisions on your own, then you can make decisions about what types of interventions you want or don't want. When we're talking about adults who have very profound autism, who in many cases are under guardianship, uh, like my daughter, I, I would argue that my daughter would want um, interventions that alleviate her symptoms. I can't imagine that my daughter enjoys self-injurious behaviors. I can't imagine that she wants to peel the skin off her arms. I can't imagine that she wants to get into such a, a heightened state of anxiety that really the only way she can get out of it is when she falls asleep. So I believe strongly that she would want us uh, to do more research on the causes of autism, understand why, what is triggering these behaviors, and find a way to help her, to help her feel better, to help her feel well enough so that she can spend more time 
in the community doing activities that she enjoys. And improving quality of life. You know, I, my, my oldest is, has, when he was younger, serious self-interest behaviors. Um, he was hospitalized, I don't know, a dozen times in three years uh, for scratching his face open and, um, you know, what we thought were broken bones from him just bashing himself into things. And, and I would catch a lot of flack from, from people when I would say like, if I could take that away from my son, I would, because I can't see any positive, any positive angle to that. He's, you know, if, if I could take away what has robbed him of the ability to be independent and to, to pursue the things that, that make him happy or, or, or to have, uh, you know, a higher quality of life and not be in pain and not have to have IVIG infusions twice a week because he lost his immune system or have epilepsy or he's schizophrenic. I wish I could take that away from him. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I guess I I wanted to bring that up. That's what this is about. This, this is research to understand the causes of autism, to develop treatments that alleviate symptoms that prevent people from enjoying their life. Yeah. And I guess I, what I wanted to do was just make that clear because there, there is sort of a, mo, a, a vocal minority of people out there that will view what you guys are doing is is anti-autism or whatever. And and I've, I've experienced that. And I guess I think it's important that people understand that nobody's forcing anyone to do anything. And this is about improving quality of life and and gaining a better understanding and if you're in a place in life where where you're functioning and you're happy and whatever more power to you but there are just as many people who are struggling who 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 are um profoundly impacted and and they deserve a chance to live the same life that you are and, and have the same opportunities and if what you guys are doing could help alleviate some of that pain and anguish and allow people to be more unabridged versions of themselves, then I think that's an amazing thing. And, and I just want people to understand that that's, that's the purpose of this. It's not, um, not, not to lump what you guys are doing in with, with people trying to, you know, view things like you just want to eradicate autistic people from the planet. Cause I hear that a lot. And, and what you guys are doing is very positive for the community. And, and I think that, we should be raising awareness for what you guys are doing so that people understand exactly what's behind it and why you're doing this and your motivations and what your goals are. And, and I, and I think that, uh, I mean, as a parent to a child who is struggling, I, I appreciate what you guys are doing. And I hope that someday something that is discovered can help my son and, and my other two may not need it, but he does. And, and, and it goes back to the whole confusing thing about everybody being labeled as autistic. You know, everybody is unique and, and treatments and everything would, would be based on what their life is like and, and how things are presenting for them and what they need help with and what they don't need help with. And, and so I guess I just, I really applaud what you guys are doing and, and I, I really appreciate it just as a parent. Um, and I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, do you, do you have any expectations for what 2020 is going to bring to this? I think one thing that we've learned um, 
in all of the years that we have been raising money to support autism research is that we're now, we've made really good progress in the last few years, and we're now at the point where there's more good research waiting to be funded than there is money to fund it. And we take that very personally. I take that very personally. When we get great grant applications that score in the fundable range by our scientific advisory board and look like they could really uh, find something that could help our family members. And when we have not been able to raise enough money to fund them, I consider that a personal failure. The foundation, everyone at the foundation is just saddened by that. But that's where we are now. We're at the point where we have attracted great scientists into the field of autism research who have wonderful new ideas for how to approach these very challenging problems. And we just don't have enough money uh, to fund all of the proposals that and all of the projects that we need to fund. So really in 2020, we really want to expand our reach, um, raise more money, um, not just from families who are raising people with autism. Frankly, they, they need to save their money for speech therapy and occupational therapy. But it's really now, I think, incumbent upon the general population, just people in society, um, to start to support autism research at a, at a higher level. You know, everybody um, donates to breast cancer. Everyone donates mm -hmm. to heart disease. Everyone realizes the importance of funding research for juvenile diabetes. Autism needs to be in that category. One in 59 children are diagnosed. Everyone now knows someone with autism. We need to have uh, more information on how to help them. And it needs to be seen as a societal problem, not just something that should be handled by, by the families. So that's really our goal for 2020 is to continue to increase awareness of the need for research and the need for everyone in the community to be supporting autism research. Um, is there a way that people can help support what you guys are doing if, if they want to? Yes, they can go to our website, autismsciencefoundation.org. Mm -hmm. uh, they can donate directly on our website. Or you can follow us, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, many social media platforms that I don't understand, but younger <laughs> people in our organization do. Um, but yes, we every dollar counts when it comes to autism research. We, the Autism Science Foundation, has the highest ratings from all of the um, all of the rating agencies that rate charities. Mm -hmm. Ninety-one cents of every dollar goes towards our mission. No money is wasted. Every dollar is put to use to support our family members. Um, I will make sure to include all of that information in the show notes so that if, you know, you guys want to help support a really good cause that maybe doesn't touch your life right now, but odds are at some point it's going to, um, they can do that. And I'll, I'll have all the social media things. So, uh, you know, everybody should follow you guys and support what you're doing because you're, you're, you're helping people, uh, in a community that is, that is underserved and, and that needs the help. Uh, and as, and again, as a parent, um, I'm very grateful for that, you know, because a lot of times I know that, that I sort of feel like our kids are forgotten and, and knowing that you guys are out there fighting the fight and trying to help gain knowledge and understanding of how things work and why things work so that we can address things that need to be addressed is, 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 it gives me hope. So I, I really, really appreciate it. And I guess, is, is there anything else that you would want um, parents or anybody listening 
to to know about either autism or or you know kind of what you guys are doing? I would just add that the one other key part of our mission is to help families understand the science that is being published about autism. Um, you know, so often the studies are published in esoteric medical journals and really no one reads them, has access to them. The journals often charge a lot of money to have access to them. We summarize all of the autism studies on our website. We explain them. We, we call it translating the science into English. Mm -hmm. We explain them um, in ways that parents can understand, in ways that parents can use them to discuss the findings with medical professionals, with educational professionals. A lot of times these are um, behavioral interventions that are appropriate for a school setting, and we encourage families to take that data and bring them to their IEP meetings uh, with their school districts. So that's bringing the science into the autism community for parents to benefit from them and from adults with autism to benefit from understanding the science is also a key part of our mission. It's kind of like the cliff notes for uh, research, really, I guess, to make it easier for people to, or make it more digestible. Um, again, I really appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Um, I'll make sure, again, all of the information is in, in the show notes and in the blog post uh, so that people can help support uh, what you guys are doing and connect with you and follow what you guys are doing. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, not only to come on the show, but just for everything that you do. Um, and, and I, I just, I really appreciate it. So thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. We appreciate all that you do as well. And if, and if there's anything that I can do, you know, that, that would be beneficial to help you guys, you know, connect with me and I, I will, I will help in whatever way I can, because whether it doesn't, whether it helps my family in this moment or even in the near future, it will help somebody else at some point. And that's, that's important. Uh, so again, I, I appreciate you coming on and uh, I, I will talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Uh, before I close things out, I, I just wanted to take a second and uh, thank Allison for coming onto the show and talking to us about uh, how autism has, has touched her life personally. Um, and I, I want to thank you, Allison, also for helping me to have a different perspective. You know, I sometimes get frustrated and overwhelmed and I, and I feel like we've made no progress in, in the 10 years that I've been involved in this. But the reality is we've made a lot of progress. Um, and, and by sharing some of the things that, you know, you experienced with your brother when you were little, um, really opened my eyes and, and it's, it's helped me to have a better perspective. So I really, truly appreciate that because, uh, sometimes I can get locked in my own way of thinking and, um, I need to be challenged to see things in a different way. And, um, you did that. And I really, I really appreciate that. Uh, you guys can find Allison at the autism science foundation. Uh, it's the autism science foundation.org. I'll have links in the show notes below. I'll have her social media links, uh, as well. So check her out. Um, you can find me at theautismdad.com. All my social links are at the top. Subscribe via any favorite podcasting app that you uh, that you use and uh, support the podcast in the link uh, in the description as well. I really appreciate that. I uh, hope you guys have a great weekend and I will talk to you next week. 
Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strength and connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U dot com, and be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDAT at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st. 